welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stammel Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book, The Search for Captain Slocum by Walter Magnus Teller. We're on chapter 14, and this is the 11th part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 14 I trusted now to the mercies of the maker of all reefs, keeping a good lookout at the same time for perils on every hand. Captain Joshua stayed two months in the city in which Virginia had grown into womanhood. He wrote that the time flew fast. On the 6th of December, in early Australian summer, the spray, in her new suit of sails and yawl rigged now, left Sydney to coast through Bass Strait. Slocum's intention was to sail south, then westward, below Australia, and out into the Indian Ocean. He was on his way home. Christmas was spent at a berth on the Yarra River at Melbourne, but Slocum lost no time in moving to St Kilda, farther down the harbour. The spray paid no port charges anywhere except at Pernambuco till she poked her nose into the custom house at Melbourne where she was charged tonnage dues. The collector extracted six shillings and sixpence. I squared the matter by charging people sixpence each for coming on board and when this business got dull, I caught a shark and charged them sixpence each to look at that. This sweetening of the kitty, when added to what he had picked up elsewhere, made it necessary for the captain to go to the nearest bank, and he had started the trip with $1.50 in his pocket. An almost continuous southwest wind kept Slocum at St Kilda a month. What with adverse winds and ice drifting up from the Antarctic, he decided to change his route. That meant he would have to return to Sydney, but not right away. The season was not yet right. Meanwhile, he would visit Tasmania. It was a piece of land he had never been to, although years before, he said, he had sailed around it. To sail into the great or lesser ports of the world, free and unsuspected, governed only by the tides and seasons and one's feelings, seems part of a far-off age. And yet, it was not so long ago. There are men who remember those days clearly. Burford Sampson of Tasmania and Australia recalled. The unexpected arrival of the spray at the mouth of the Tamar River caused much excitement in the town of Launceston when the news was received from Lowhead Pilot Station that Captain Slocum intended to sail her up to the town some 44 miles away. The Tamar is one of the few rivers in the world which is navigable for vessels of 5,000 tonnes from its mouth to its source, tidal with a rise of 11 to 14 feet on the ebb with a current of some 6 or 7 knots. It is a splendid waterway, two to three miles wide in places. At its source is Launceston, a town at the time of the Yankee skipper's visit of some 20,000 souls. He sailed her up without a pilot. During this stay of a week or so, the little craft was thrown open for inspection and he gave two or three lectures in a public hall on his single-handed voyage, which filled us schoolboys with wonder and not a little awe. The citizens, headed by the mayor, gave Slocum a civic welcome and the lecture hall was packed to the doors at all his lectures. The captain was exceedingly good to us kids, marking our atlases for us with his log and telling us of his experiences when passing through the Straits of Magellan. 
He told us he was never lonely and that well out on the ocean, he always turned in at night without any fears and had a good night's sleep, knowing the little spray would not let him down. He said he found a peace in the midst of the ocean. He said, spray is a fine sea boat. This we found hard to imagine, for her draught was very shallow. We also thought she would not be much good to windward, but he said she was not bad and a good all-rounder. To us, this dry, humorous Yankee was a hero, and we worshipped him accordingly. Also, before he went away, we prevailed on our mothers, cousins and aunts to come to light with jams, jellies and other non-perishable grub to stock up the spray's larder. Thus, in Tasmania too, the ever-resourceful Massachusetts merchantman found still another means of making a dollar and of being heard and noticed. In more ways than one, the lectures had become a necessity, the spray, as a show, was so popular in some ports that to handle the crowds and answer the questions was a chore. I never worked so hard in my life, Slocum told a friend. I would be dog-tired at night and drop right down. The first lecture was held in a hall in a town near the mouth of the Tamar. Free rent was given by the owner, a kind lady from Scotland, so the venture was at once a success. Free advice was given by a Tasmanian gentleman in his first attempts on the platform, Slocum said he felt uneasy. His newfound friend had reassured him. Man, man, he said to the captain, great nervousness is only a sign of brain, and the more brain a man has, the longer it takes him to get over the affliction. But you will get over it. In recalling the helpful words, several years later, Slocum added that he thought it only fair to say that he was not yet quite cured. Tasmanians took to Slocum. One day, while he was away from the spray, he returned to find a letter on board. He opened it and read, A lady sends Mr Slocum the enclosed £5 note as a token of her appreciation of his bravery in crossing the wide seas on so small a boat, and all alone, without human sympathy to help. The lady did not call again, and he never found out who she was. On his part, the poet-sailor was haunted by the beauty of the landscape all about. If there was a moment in my voyage when I could have given it up, it was there and then. But of course, give up was the one thing he could not do. On the 16th of April, 1897, Slocum filled away again. Summer was ending. Winter was blowing up from the south. That meant fair winds for the north. It took only eight days to sail back to Sydney. There, the captain was laid up for a couple of weeks. Complaint? Neuralgia. Getting underway once more, northward bound, Slocum now found fine weather. He settled down to reading day and night and left that pleasant occupation only to trim sail or tack or to lie down and rest while the spray nibbled at the miles. He compared his state with that of circumnavigators of olden times. Their hardships and romantic escapes, those of them who escaped death and worse sufferings, did not enter my experience sailing all alone around the world. For me is left only to tell of pleasant experiences till finally my adventures are prosy and tame. Slocum passed peacefully among the islands of the Great Barrier Reef on Australia's east coast. He stopped in Queensland to lecture again. At Cooktown, where he moored the spray nearly abreast of the Captain Cook monument and saw the very stones the great navigator had seen, he lectured for charity in the Presbyterian Church. He made Thursday Island, mid-channel in Torres Strait, on the 22nd of June, and as the only American Victorian in port, helped celebrate the Diamond Jubilee of the Good Queen's Reign, a jubilee 
with an Australian Corroboree in it. Ten days later, he sighted the large island of Timor to the north. On the 11th of July, Christmas Island was abeam and Slocum and the spray were out on the Indian Ocean, bound west. It was now only 550 miles to the Keeling or Cocos Islands, but unless the lone navigator could hold a true course, he would surely miss the tiny atoll. Slocum made the islands dead ahead. The first unmistakable signs of the land was a visit one morning from a white tern that fluttered very knowingly about the vessel and then took itself off westward with a business-like air in its wing. Farther on, I came among a great number of birds. My reckoning was up and springing aloft. I saw from halfway up the mast coconut trees standing out of the water ahead. I expected to see this, but still it thrilled me as an electric shock might have done. I slid down the mast, trembling under the strangest sensations, and not able to resist the impulse, I sat on deck and gave way to my emotions. To folks in a parlour on shore, this may seem weak indeed, but I am telling the story of a voyage alone. Slocum dropped anchor in the island lagoon, 17th of July, to stay several weeks. From there he wrote Joseph Gilder, heading the letter, The Spray Tied to a Palm Tree at Keeling Cocos Islands, August 20th, 1897. Perhaps she did not expect to get a letter from this little kingdom in the sea, but one never knows what may happen and the risks one runs on the land. Keeling Cocos is a strange little world owned by the first settlers, a family of Scotch of the name of Clunis Ross. Many things here are the reverse of other lands, and the women, to use a homely phrase, rule the roost. It comes hard on the men. It would do the soul of the wretched Fujian women good to see the Keeling lord and master of a coconut tree. I am looking over these things as I sail along. The heart of a missionary is all on fire to reconstruct the religion of this people. If ever one sets foot on this peaceful land, I hope he will not be of the soul-destroying sort that spoiled my early days. The conversation with yourself once often comes to mind about our thoughts at sea. While I may not think clear, I am certainly clearer at sea than in a busy city, and the thing most on my mind, that is, the business in hand, the reckoning, as I sailed along, has never been better kept than ever on any ship of mine, whosoever well officered. Was it from being even more alone in my case? Looking over the journals of all the old voyagers, I see none working the old-fashioned methods so nearly correct as the spray has been in making her landfalls, seven times now in succession, I never did better when I had even the very best of chronometers and officers to assist. Now will you tell me where it comes in? My crow is a one-dollar tin clock, and of course is almost no timepiece at all. I have to boil her often to keep her at it from noon to noon through the months. Some thinking man will help me out on this, else I will never be able to explain how it is done. The one thing most certain about my sea reckonings, they are not kept with slavish application at all, and I have been right every time, and seem to know that I was right. Even a lunar observation, so far have taken only one on the voyage, taken, of course, alone, was practically correct, I found a few hours later, when I made the land. There was not a difference of five miles between lunar observations, dead reckoning, and the true position of the vessel, assuming the longitude of the Marqueses to be correct. I was then 43 days out, and had not lost six hours rest. But the vessel had sailed at her top speed 
all that time or all the time that the wind blew hard. Your New York ladies, I see, are going in for yachting. Why not study navigation too? A lady in your city born used to stand on deck and take good sights and work them too, as correctly as anyone could do. My plan to be useful will be to sail a college ship around the world. How I would like to teach young people in the science of nautical astronomy. A fine sailing ship would be my choice and she should be a flyer making steamboat time without the bustle of steam and all its discomforts. I smile at some of the comments made on my present insignificant outing. Some think I am exploring the resources of a man under great disadvantages. They are most all very kind in their comments, but most all wrong as to the real object of my voyage, which, to tell the truth, I did not think would interest our people. So I merely remarked before shoving off that I was going alone. What I sailed for I have got, and more. I found things I did not dream of meeting with. I hoist them all in, have worked harder in port than at sea. I have now a valuable cargo. Sail tomorrow, homeward. Do you think our people will care for a story of the voyage around? Slocum sailed again, not tomorrow, but the day after that, the 22nd of August. By evening, the islands were out of sight, except in his strongest affection. Later he wrote, If there is a paradise on earth, it is Keeling. Two years and four months have elapsed since Slocum had left Boston. Apparently friends at home had not heard much from him. Before Joe Gilder's letter arrived, postmarked Batavia, 29th of September 1897, more than a month after it was written, and not received till the 3rd of November, he had inquired of the captain's lawyers, Cohen, Wing, Putnam and Burlingham of New York, as to the captain's whereabouts. The firm had advised that their last word had come from Melbourne on the 17th of January. He does not say when he is coming home. He says that he is writing now and then to the New York Sunday world, they added. Throughout all these months, to whom was Slocum writing? Hetty? His children? No letters are mentioned in Victor's book, and though Victor was a letter saver, there were none from his father to him among his papers. B. Amar wrote, I believe J.S. wrote mostly to me, and often, but no letter to B. Amar from those years survives either. Jesse wrote, About any letters I might have received from my father, if I did they were destroyed many years ago. Garfield wrote that he never in his life had a letter from the captain. As for Hetty, we can be almost sure that if letters were written and received by her, they have not survived. What we do know is that two days after Slocum left Keeling Cocos, homeward bound, he was reported in New Bedford. Probably lost. Family of Captain Josiah Slocum relinquish all hope. Believed that he was drowned during a heavy storm. Providence, August 24th. Captain Josiah Slocum, who sailed from Boston April 24th, 1895, with the intent of circling the globe in a cockle shell, is probably lost. His daughter, who lives in Attleboro, has heard nothing from him in some time, and it is believed that his little boat, Spray, has been overcome in an ocean storm. Captain Slocum kept those at home posted as to his movements, and when the weeks and then months passed without word of any kind from him, the fear became the belief that he was no more. But not long after that, the New York Evening Post had a different report on the voyage of the Spray. The little sloop with Captain Slocum at Port Louis, Mauritius. Port Louis, Island of Mauritius, September 21st. 
the 40-foot sloop Spray, Captain Joshua Slocum of Boston, Massachusetts, has arrived here on her way around the world. From Keeling, Cocos, Slocum had sailed to Rodriguez, far out in the Indian Ocean, like land adrift. He had spent eight restful days at the mid-ocean land of plenty, and then gone on to Mauritius. There he was royally entertained. He lectured and wore a new suit, trying to rig like a man ashore. He took seven young ladies for a sail in the sloop before, on the 26th of October, the spray again put to sea. Now he reached the limit of the trade winds, which had carried him some thousands of miles from Australia. Suddenly there was no more wind. For a whole day and night he lay becalmed. With furled sails he sat in the stillness of the ocean. Then a breeze came up, which turned quickly into a gale. The spray suffered much. He wrote, she was driven in many directions. For four days she drifted about, within sixty miles of Natal, South Africa, waiting for a favourable wind for the harbour. On the 17th of November she made Durban and dropped anchor near the old forerunner in the creek before anyone had a chance to get on board. No, Slocum was not drowned. From the Royal Hotel, Durban, 9th of December, 1897, very worldly conscious, he wrote Robert's Brothers. By this mail I send you post office order for five pounds, about the amount with interest I hope that you paid my son Victor some time ago, twenty dollars. My ambition is to pay all my little debts before I reach home. I see no reason now why I shall not be able to do so. I had quite a long pull to get at what I am about now. I met Stanley here the other day. I was at the time a guest of Colonel Saunderson, MP. Stanley is an MP as well, you remember. It is said that he can do more by keeping quiet than any man alive. He wanted to know what I would do without compartments if a spray would strike a rock. Must keep her off the rocks. If a swordfish should run her through, what then? Well, that would boom my show. Stanley must have been bored, for he gave me a smile that would make a worried editor yell with envy. We all had coffee then, and Irish stories. Stanley, however, gave a recipe which I think he said was American. Perhaps it is old, I don't know, to keep intoxicating fumes down if one must drink. Take first a wine glass of oil. That, of course, rises over the liquor. One of the party was an old sea captain and told the worst story, so the colonel declared, that was ever heard, and appealing to me, asked if ever I heard so bad a yarn. It was a bad story, even for a sea captain, and I admitted that I never heard worse, except some that I myself had told. Stanley smiled again, that angelic smile born of practice and of long years of observation. The best story told of the evening was accorded me, and you may see that we had a wretched time. However, the colonel said it was all right, and thereupon invited me to be put up at Saunderson Castle, and make that my home when I come to Ireland, which certainly I shall do. Though more than two and a half years had elapsed since the start of the voyage, and though he had sailed tens of thousands of miles alone, the captain was still alive, still sailing. It was only to domesticity, comfort, safety, and many of the conventional usages of the land that he probably was by now lost. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. <laughs>
Cheers.